You're listening to the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick is a horseman, trainer, international clinician, and author who helps empower horse people from all over the world with the skills, knowledge, and mindsets needed to create trusting partnerships with their horses. Warwick offers a free seven-day trial to his comprehensive online video library that includes hundreds of full-length training videos and several home study courses at videos.warwickshiller.com. G'day everyone, welcome back to the Journey on Podcast. I'm your host Warwick Schiller and my special guest this week is Catriona McDonald and Catriona lives in Wales, I think she's originally from Scotland and I would love to tell you what she does but it's pretty hard for me to encompass it uh, in my own words so I'm just going to read you her biography that she sent me. Catriona McDonald is a healer animal communicator, story carrier, and workshop leader. She's also a HeartMath Institute trainer and works in the field of human potential through equine-facilitated coaching. In the early 1900s, she became one of the pioneers of holistic medicine with animals as a cranial osteopath, working with sport horses, working dogs, companion animals, and even injured wildlife. It was the animals who showed her how far humans had moved out of the interconnectedness of all life on this beautiful earth. They showed her the way back into an original kind of relating with grace and compassion. The passion and longing at the heart of her work became sharing these ways back into connection and a remembering of ourselves as one of the myriad kinds of beings on the earth. In the first couple of decades of her work, this was embedded within her osteopathic practice bringing people and their animals into closer relationship. Then, in 2014, she began sharing her love of all the more-than-human life through leading workshops. In these, she shares heart-centered practices that awaken us to the beauty of our more-than-human relationships, connect us to a deep sense of our place amongst this web of life. At midwinter solstice in 2018, in response to the challenge of these times, Catriona created new work, bringing the wisdom of horse into the centre of reimagining a new way of being human in these times. This work weaves together all the threads of her learning and experience and her own journey of transformation with horse. It is a work of reawakening our innate imaginal capacity and one where we connect to our agency to become the change that we want to see in the world. The old myths that have accompanied the people of the earth for thousands of human generations are guides and teachers in the workshops and courses. The gifts and teaching of these stories are the framework for honouring the land and the more than human life, and for the inquiry that the workshop participants take to the horses, both in the form of shamanic drum journeys to the horse nation in the spirit world and in meeting with the horses that live on the land where the workshops are held. That uh, that pretty much encompasses what she's on about. Uh, I enjoyed this conversation so much. She was, you know, this this podcast on top of, you know, like the the one with Emily Kazdotta and Rupert about the Rupert Isaacson about the hunter gatherers, and Donna Gamarkegaard about her work and like this 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 episode this meeting with Katrina came at. I think just the right time for um, for me personally, but I think for the listeners who are regular listeners to really understand what she's on about. So I hope you guys enjoy this conversation as much as I did.
Thetriana McDonald, welcome to the Journey on Podcast. Thank you, Warwick. <laughs> it's great to be here. I'm, uh, I'm excited about this. So our mutual friend, Kathy Price, and previous podcast guest uh, suggested that you might be someone good to talk to on the podcast. And, you know, looking at your bio, it's like, oh, we could talk for like six weeks <laughs> about <laughs> your journey and, and all the things that you've done and how you got to the place where you're at. But what I might start out is uh, tell us what you currently do. So what I currently do is I work as a healer. I do energy healing with people, animals, and buildings, and sometimes the land around those buildings. And I'm an animal communicator as well, so I kind of weave all of those skill sets together. And and then the other work that I do is that I lead um, and uh yeah, with my horse and a herd of horses that she lives in, something called imaginal horse circles, which are about reconnecting people with the land and reconnecting people with our kind of ancestral ways of honouring the land and reimagining with the horses, with the, through the wisdom of horse, uh, reimagining them with them, a different way of being human in the world and navigating our ways through the challenges of these times that we're in. So to find a good way forwards and a good way for all the different kinds of life on the earth. So that's what I do these days. That was the best what I do that I've ever had on the podcast. It's <laughs> interesting you said you you heal people, animal, the land and buildings. And some people might think that sounds a little strange, we have an intern staying with us here right now. So we've got, we're at a new, we bought a new ranch. And so we've got an intern here and she's British. Her name's Jo. And she, she does Reiki. She does all sorts of things. And she's just a force of nature. But our, um, uh, what they call them, a side-by-side or a quad, you know, like the four-wheel drive, oh, yeah. little thing you drive around and feed the hay out of and stuff. It wouldn't start the other day. It was stuck in mm-hmm. gear and it, we couldn't get it out of gear. Yeah, it has no clutch. You just push it in and out. It couldn't couldn't get it out of gear. Um, Joe was driving it when it happened, and I was busy doing stuff, and she couldn't get it out of gear, so it won't start if it's not out of gear. And so she called some friends, and they said, "Try this, try that." And she tried a number of different things. She got on YouTube, she looked that up, couldn't figure it out. And so later on in the day, I see it's not there anymore where it was broken down, and she's moved it somewhere. And I said, "How did you get that thing started?" She goes, "Well, believe it or not, I did Reiki on it." well i do believe it because when i was in my early 20s one of the first things that i ever did healing with was a motor vehicle my i borrowed my mother's car to go on holiday down to glastonbury festival which you might have heard of and some of the people in the podcast might have heard Mm -hmm. of and a big music festival down in the southwest of england and uh and so my mum and dad were on holiday and my mum had loaned me her car because I didn't have one at the time to drive down there. And it's a long way from where I was living in Scotland all the way down. I'd, I guess not in US distances, but it takes a while getting across the UK. And uh, anyway, it had an electrical fault. And I honestly, this car had broken down for the 13th time. And the friend I was travelling with, we'd had the, you know, the roadside recovery out and they would look at it and go, don't know. 
just keep trying and we'll see and it will start eventually which it would and it would go so far and then it would break down so you know 13 times so I said to my friend we, we'd got going again for the 13th time and there was a motorway services and I said pull in here so we went in and I said right I'm going to give the car some healing and my friend went what and I said, I don't know how to do this, but I'm just going to give it a go because I'm sick of this car breaking down. So, and we were nowhere near where we needed to go. And they were like, you can't do that in the car park because everybody's looking. And I said, I don't care. So I gave this car healing and I just kind of tuned in to where it felt like things weren't flowing because it's all energy. And, uh, and I gave the car healing. Do you know what? Hand on heart. It did not break down again. It parked up at the, for the five days at the festival and it drove the, I don't know, 450, 500 miles all the way back to Scotland. And then my mum tried to drive it and it broke down again. And they never got to the bottom of what the electrical fault was. But as far as I was concerned, it got us where we were going. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, Ten years ago, listening to you say that, I'd have thought you're a whack job. And now, yeah, listen, I'm like, yeah, of course, it's 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 all energy. Like, yeah, 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 exactly. So let's go back to you. You uh, heal people, animals, the land, and buildings. Let's. I mean, you know, I think we've had a lot of people on the podcast who heal with people and animals, and people are probably. You know, the listeners are probably, uh, you know, up to date with how some of that stuff works. Mm. But what about healing the land? What are you, when you are healing the land, what are you, what are you healing the land from and how are you doing it? Okay, so there's two main ways, I guess I would uh, say that I do that kind of work. The first one is in the remote healing sessions that I do, which I yeah, so nearly all of my healing work is remote. Um, so I will work with someone who's saying um, a common example would be there's some kind of dis disturbance that we're aware of in the house because there's a room that is always cold. There's a room that no one can sleep in. There's a room that the children won't go in or yeah, the children keep seeing someone at the top of the stairs dressed in black that scares them or the cat behaves weirdly in a certain bit of the house or something like that and there's some kind of sense of disturbance so I'll always tune in when I tune into the building to tune into the land around and underneath the building because sometimes you get things like um disturbed watercourses, you get disturbed energy flow through the land. And so I'll also tune in and sense where the spirit of that land is, the main kind of overriding caretaking spirit of the land and spend some time in communication with them remotely to ask permission about what it's okay to do. Because what you're always trying to do is create more balance. So I have to not kind of, as it were, fix something in one spot that it always has a ripple effect so I'm trying to kind of go up to the boss as it were the boss level the managerial level up line to find out what I can do that will create more balance in that ripple effect not less you know um, and so so mostly it's that 
Um, and in Britain, we've got areas. There was sometimes I've been asked to work in the border area between England and Scotland around kind of Hadrian's Wall. And there were a lot of skirmishes and battles so and raids. So then you get disturbed energy because of the people's activity and you get people that have been killed in a in a traumatic or a very sudden way. Um, and so then there's kind of clearing of those spirits to do. Uh, so that can be quite a bit of work. So um, so that's the main, that's a precy of the main way, one way. And then the other way is, well, we're doing it where the horse circles happen here in West Wales. So there's a herd of horses where I live. The land, the people who are custodians of the land, if you like, um, rather than saying they own it, which you know, is a kind of alien concept. You can't own a piece of land, but they're custodians of this piece of land. And so we're in dialogue, listening to the land about how the land would like to be part of that work and whether it would. And so there's beginning to be, there's a tree where I go and sing quite regularly the grandmother chant to the indigenous grandmothers in the four directions and I'll sit there in the morning and say my prayers and then that's an ash tree uh, in a particular bank um, and she she's kind of got a kind of mother status with the other trees on the land so um, and then there's an alder tree which is a tree of like wet ground uh, and the horse circles quite often take offerings there and we've sat in council around the tree and we've done some heart connecting practices along the lines of Heart Math Institute work and heart coherence with the trees there. Um, just kind of sharing that goodness with the land. So at the moment we've got digger works going on so that we can put a shed up for the horses so they've got shelter away from the flies and the bad weather in the winter and that we can store hay in um, and feed and the kind of things you need around horses and if we had an injured horse we could bring them in there that kind of thing so we went and talked to the land about where could we put this shed where it wouldn't be a complete disturbance to the kind of flow of energy for the land there um, and then the people from the horse circle came and made prayers and they sang and we played music and danced and um, gave offerings to the land to say thank you for allowing us to bring the diggers in here because we'd kind of been given permission. So that's a process of healing, being in that kind of listening um, to the land and saying, well, as humans, this is what we'd like to do um, because we're going to put in an, a riding arena so that we can play with the horses in a kind of focused place. and. Um, the people who are custodians had some ideas about, well, the most logical place to put it would be here. And when we listened to the land, they said, the land said, uh-uh, no way. And so we then had to go back and say, where would this be the least disturbance? Where could this be a place where we could play and explore with the horses? And where would be a good place for that in terms of the flow of the movement of energy on the land? So that's a healing to the land rather than doing what us humans have done most recently, which is just decide that we've got some land and we're going to use that bit for that and use this bit for something else and the operative word in there being use, you know. Um, so this is about kind of co-creating something with the land and asking the land about what what that land would like 
in terms of what we're doing. So, yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah, that's, you know, this stuff's fascinating. A few listeners who have been regular listeners, I uh, had a, a Lakota Native American woman named Jessica Whiteplume on the podcast uh, in the first year of the podcast. She actually presented at the podcast summit and was amazing. Um, and I was talking to Jessica about, you know, I've got a lot of, I've got quite an interest in indigenous wisdom and indigenous practices and stuff. And she mentioned cultural appropriation. And I said to her, I said, but the stuff that I'm into, you know, I'm not, she, she, cause she, her father was actually, he was a native American and he was in the army, uh, and met her mother in Germany. And so she has ties to Germany, but she said in Germany there's a lot of pretendians. She called, they call them pretendians. <laughs> like they dress up with the headdress on and dance around, and, you know. And I said, I'm not really interested in, in trying to have all the, the trappings, but the, the, the wisdom and the, that way of looking at the world, that's what interests me. And I said, I don't really think what I'm looking at is cultural appropriation because it's not – one culture, I think it's the, the actual indigenous wisdom. And I talked about Rupert Isaacson when he took his son Rowan to different shamans around the world. He went to one in Mongolia, one in Botswana, uh, one in Australia, one in uh, Arizona. And every, all four of those, you know, the, the, the customs and the things that they did are thousands of years old before telephones before the internet before before the telephones before ships even sailed across the ocean so there's no communication but they all did something very similar had very similar practices and that's got to be like earth wisdom and so i was telling her that's what i'm interested in and she said well where are you from and i said oh well i don't have any of that in me because i'm you know i'm five eighths irish you know and she goes well if you go back far enough in ireland they had that too and so what you were just talking about right there, like, I'm, I'm excited because, like, that's, that's my Indigenous heritage, wisdom, practices sort of stuff. Yeah. So um, where did – how did you – how did you get into this stuff? Wow. Um, how did I get into it? I'm not really sure. It kind of – well, like, there's different landmarks along the way on that journey it's definitely been a journey um mm. so when i was 13 we moved house and we went to live on a housing estate which had been built on a landfill site so we were basically living in a house built on rubbish um and the land had originally been used as a wartime air uh, airfield in in the first world war particularly and so there were you know occasionally when they were uh, digging up the land to build the houses they would dig up bits of planes you know like propellers and sometimes whole planes but the, a, a big section of it at that time was still just ground doing its own thing we would call it rewilded now but it, back then it was called waste ground interestingly so um it was just known locally as the airfield and the the housing estate i lived on was called the was called the airfield and the it wasn't fenced at all and the local romany people used to tether their horses on it and 
So I would go over there and they were all really gruff men. They were sort of, you know, I guess 50s, 60s. And they were, they would tell you to clear off if they saw you near the horses. But there was one chap who was younger, probably in his 30s, called Martin. I can still remember his name. And he had three cob mares. And I would go over there and hang out with these mares who were on chain tethers to keep them on the ground. And um, one of them I made the closest relationship with, she was beautiful chestnut mare with this flaxen mane and tail. Absolutely beautiful beautiful horse and she was getting bigger and bigger by the week (laughs) and I was kind of going oh it's the grass you know in the summer and then whenever I went over there I always took carrots with me and water Um, and so one day I went over there and she wickered to me as she always did but she didn't walk to the end of her the length of her chain and i'd been there the previous evening and of course when i got to her the reason she hadn't walked a step was because there was a foal sleeping in the grass by her feet that had been born you know sometime that night and um so I used to go and spend time on that land, even before the foal was born, just wandering about, looking for badger and fox tracks. And there was always skylarks in the air and they have a very particular song. And if I hear skylarks now, it takes me back to that time because, you know, my household was pretty difficult. I was raised in quite a difficult household and so it was my peace to go there and I would just hang out with the horses so when I went that morning there was this foal this you know not even a day old foal who got up and she and I became friends so my relationship to the land started at that point and in that playfulness with that foal and 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 just kind of becoming friends with her because we did become friends um and my father was uh, very much into sailing. He was a mariner, so we would go sailing at the weekends. I just wanted to be around horses, but we got taken off sailing. And so there was also something of the wildness of the sea and and the breeze and the marshes, because it was around London. So it's not very glam. It's not glam sailing. Think kind of slightly grim weather and sort of mud flats everywhere. But There was just something in that for me that really called to me and the peacefulness that somehow kind of got settled in my bones in hanging out with the horses and that foal on, on, on that piece of land just became like an anchor point for me that wherever I was, I was always looking for for that wildness. So when I went off to train as an osteopath, which is what I did in the beginning before I became a, became a healer, train as an osteopath in central London for me the breeze carried something of that wildness the breeze that moved around the buildings and amongst the traffic and the weeds that grew up through the cracks in the pavement and so I was always somehow connected to that wildness and so for me I guess the practices have come out of a love for that wildness. And when I move to where I live now and where my horse lives now and where these horse circles happen, it's in the National Park in the southwest of Wales in Pembrokeshire. And 
you know, as I'm sitting here talking to you, I'm looking up at the Priscelli Mountains, you know, which is where the Priscelli blue stone that forms some of the the stones from Stonehenge are made of Priscelli blue stone. And it doesn't, doesn't come from anywhere else in the UK. So it's certainly not from 250 miles east of here. So anyway, so I came here and I remember one day just sinking into that connection with the land and the listening with the land. And I had been making connection with the ancestors that are here, the presence of the ancestors, the old one, you know, thousands of years ago that lived and walked and moved on this land. And I'd been making connection with them. And this one day they showed me the way that they loved the land. And it almost makes me cry now, the way that they showed me how much they loved the land, this kind of, it was just in them and it was a fierce thing as well and that everything that they did all the ways that they lived came out of a love for the land and a, and out of that comes respect and reverence and and then out of that comes the practices because um you know, in my hunting for where are the indigenous practices, you know, um, two significant experiences happened. One is that my horse went lame and that led me to a shamanic practitioner and a shamanic training, which is a whole other story. Um, and and so I ended up going and training in what we call Western shamanism, but I ended up having a problem with it because I felt like it was a methodology that wasn't based, it didn't arise out of that kind of connection with the land. It didn't arise out of that kind of, of spiritual connection and deep love and reverence for the for the land so I I kind of wasn't sure about it in the end because it felt as it, a, a bit rootless um, and a bit heady mm. and then the other experience that I had in this journey was that um, it was a previous I went to do a workshop with a previous podcast guest of yours a few episodes ago Linda Kahanov who wrote the Tao of Equus and mm. Yeah. Uh, she's she's quite responsible for you know where my life is right now <laughs> so um uh, a couple of workshops that I did with her the second one was in South Dakota and the friend who hosted it that I'd met at the first workshop I'd done the previous year I stayed out a bit after the Linda workshop was completed and she said oh you know um she lives in South Dakota she's at um near Rapid City she said oh I've got a friend who's a medicine man um, on the reservation, but it's about three hours drive away and he's doing a ceremony this Saturday. Would you like to go? But we don't have to if you don't want to. It's totally fine because it might not be your thing. And I went, yes, please, I would really like to go. But there was also a bit of me that was feeling, oh, is it right for me to be there as a white Caucasian British person, you know, and all the history that's happened with the First Nations people all over the world? And and what, is that really okay? And mm -mm -mm. But I, I was intrigued. So I went. And so it 
uh, I then became friends with this uh, medicine man, Lakota medicine man and his family, and he and I started working together. So some of the healing work that I do is as a direct result of those um, sessions with him, working with him and, and just learning from him and being really eldered and mentored by by him. And at some point he, you know, there was an invitation there from the spirits that he worked with and certainly an open invitation with him for me to, you know, go and learn those ways and become someone that carried the peace pipe. And it, I just thought it's so beautiful, you know, this tradition that they have with white buffalo calf woman and the ceremonies, but it's not of the land that I am from. And I remember saying it's hard for me to decline this invitation, but I feel like I have to try and find my own indigenous practices and not learn the practices of another culture from a different land entirely, you know, a different continent entirely. And um, and I think that was a really pivotal point in, in, in kind of saying, okay, so what are the indigenous practices and how do we find them and how do we unearth them? Um, and one of the ways that there are clues to uncover for me is in the old mythology of the British Isles. Um, and the other thing about, you know, you were saying Rupert Isaacson discovered that a lot of the practices in, with these, um, medicine people from these far reaching indigenous cultures is that there's a lot of similarity, well, there's a lot of similarity in the stories that these different cultures have. Um, there's a lot of similarities when you listen to creation stories, for example, and teaching stories. And so with the um, imaginal horse circles, the stories kind of came forward from the mythology of the land of Wales to say, we've got teachings to show you how to be in right relationship. So there's a whole series of tales that were originally part of the oral storytelling tradition, of course, and then they got written down in the sort of 12th and 13th century by monks. So they've been Christianized a bit. Um, but there's clues in there about when you're in right relationship with the Celtic other world, with the spirit worlds and with the spirits of place and the spirits of land, and you honour the land and those spirits and these other worlds properly and well, then both worlds flourish. All the worlds flourish. All of life flourishes. And when you move out of right relationship and you get it wrong, here's what the consequences are. So um, I'm specifically talking for some of the people that are listening about the tales from the Mabinogion. Um, so they speak there about oh, this is what happens when you're in right relationship. Everything flourishes and oh, this is what happens when, when it goes wrong and, and the humans fall out of right relationship because it's pretty much us humans that do that. So, yeah, so for me, the stories are really important teachers and not just teaching as in, oh, we listen to the story and there's some, you know, you get taught about consequence in the story. For me, the stories are living beings. They're actual living beings that have come through from the other worlds. And when I'm telling a story in a circle, 
because I only ever do this when I'm in circle running the horse circles or I'm out on the land and I will tell the land the stories, the world, the land of Wales, the stories of the Mabinogion to the to the to the river, to the mountain, to to the more than human life as a gift to them, and as a kind of an awakening and a being in right relationship. So for me, when I'm doing that, I don't learn the story and then recite it. I'm actually, it's almost an invocation. It's an invitation to the story to come and be with us around the fire and move amongst the people. Um, and kind of, yeah, join us around the fire like stories and people have gathered around the fire. I mean, all of those cultures you mentioned, they all sit around fires and they tell stories. Um, and <clears throat> it's not just entertainment in, in my understanding. So they're, they're kind of living beings. They're part of the fabric of this world that we live in. So, um, yeah. What... So what are these, I can't, I'm probably not going to pronounce the word right, but stories of the Mabinogion, is that who was it? Yeah, Mabinogion. Yeah, it's a kind of tongue twister, isn't it? <laughs> it's easier when you've seen it written down. Right, and what exactly it is that? So they were some stories that were mm, almost chosen out of the oral tradition of stories within Wales and written down by the monks they got Christianized a bit and adjusted a bit, as these things do. And then they've been translated um, more recently, written down um, again, translated out of kind of old language into more modern Welsh and then translated into English. So there are a whole series of stories. There's what are called the four branches of the Mabinogion which are a continuous, they're a bit like, you'll have heard of the Arthurian legends or the tales of Parzival or Percival, one of Arthur's knights. It's like that. So it's this sort of epic tale from the beginning about a lord who actually lived in this area, you know, lived in this area of Wales. He was lord of this area. And actually, as well, Cathy Price, who we both know, who's another podcast guest and been at your summit as well. Um, Cathy Price lives up the other end of, of this particular lord's territory back in the time of the story. And it's a tale about it opens where he's out on a hunt, which is a is a a way of saying that he's on a quest and he ends up separated from his party. So it's just him and his horse and his dogs. And, and he, and he's a young man and his blood's up and he ends up um, feeding the stag that is brought down by someone else's hounds who appear in the forest when he's on his own, when he's chasing the stag and he breaks hunting etiquette. And the Lord whose, hunt, whose hounds actually brought the stag down reprimands him. And of course, this Lord of here in this world says, oh, how do I make this right? And so they end up swapping places. Um, and the Lord, who's called Lord Puith, does in fact make it right. And he makes it right and then some. You know, he proves that he knows how to be in right relationship with life, how he knows how to be a good sovereign, and he knows how to be in right relationship with the queen of that place because he ends up through in the Celtic other world. And, um, and, and then everything flourishes and then the story moves on to him 
being uh, going into a meeting with Rhiannon, who is uh, one of the names of the horse goddess. So where you're from, five-eighths from in Ireland, she's called Macha. So there's stories of Macha, the horse goddess, um, there. And she's thought to be exactly the same as Epona um, and another um, uh, queen by the name of Rigatona, which means great queen. And Friannon is thought to be a name. So that they've all got the same, uh, Epona's got the prefix epo on it, which signifies horse in one of the branches of the old Celtic languages. So, so in that way, the story starts to weave with horse and the horse goddess in these lands. And then there's a whole story about Puith and Friannon getting together and their son being born and their son is stolen on the night that he's born. And at the same time, in another bit of the lands of Wales, a foal is stolen every May Eve night and that foal is stolen and and the child ends up where the foal is and they're raised together. So there's this whole epic tale and it goes on and on and on for lots of lifetimes, um, over many human lifetimes anyway. So there's that's the first four branches. And then there's various other tales, some of which are... Um, they're much shorter and there's one called the dream of emperor maxim which is about a roman emperor who was living as a governor in britain and he there really was an emperor maxim who lived in britain as an emperor during the roman occupation so the stories have got sort of roots in you know kind of what's agreed as consensual history so there it's just this collection of tales um and I don't know how, how much you know about the culture of Wales. That oral tradition is very much kept alive today through the Esteddfod. So every child in school will learn the art of the spoken word or the sung word or traditional Welsh music, traditional Welsh dancing. And then every child kind of competes within their school at this thing called an Esteddfod and the best ones go up to the competition in the county and and up all the way up into national level. And, and the child that uh, is the overall kind of the one that is the champion of all of the competition gets the bardic chair because Welsh has this incredible bardic tradition. So it's still very much alive and practiced today. And it's all Welsh language. It's all the Welsh language. There's no English spoken at an Esteddfod. So, yeah, so it's part of that tradition. The first time I went to Wales, I went to the grocery store. And I thought it was so cool that, like, the, the signs that hang above the aisles in the grocery store, uh, they're in English and Welsh. And there's not many places you go uh, like that. And when I first read Welsh, I thought whoever wrote this was drunk. <laughs> 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 it just uh. looks like drunk talk. <laughs> it looks like, yeah, I see what you mean. The thing about Welsh is... Uh, it's actually much easier to read than English because they write their vowel sounds precisely. So when, so you know how in English you could see the letter U in a word and you would have no idea whether it was pronounced a uh or u unless you knew how to speak English. Well, in Welsh, they don't leave any room for any doubt. They write the vowel sounds very specifically. 
So, uh, so that's why it looks like there's far too many consonants in the word because they're actually there's a lot of consonants. The vowel sounds, yeah. And so, once you've learned the rules, you can kind of pronounce anything. But it is hilarious because uh, uh, you know you get tourists. Lots of tourists come here in the summer, and I remember where I used to live. It was called Llanbeda Pont Stefan is the Welsh name, which always goes at the top. And then the English word for that town is much easier. It's called Lampeta. It's much easier. Everybody calls it Lampeta. And so, of course, you're driving around, you get Welsh at the top and then English at the bottom. And I came out of the co-op about nine o'clock in the evening in Lampeta, where I used to live. And this man was in a camper van and he ran up to me with a map in his hand. And he, you could tell he was a bit sort of, where am I? <laughs> you know, and he said, are you local? Do you live around here? And I said, yes. I said, uh, where are you trying to get to? And he said, I'm trying to get to, and he couldn't pronounce it. And it was Landrindod Wells. And so the poor man had been trying to drive this camper van on his own, read a map, read Welsh road signs, and he'd ended up in Llanbeda Pont Stefan instead of Llandrindod Wells. And and he said, oh, well, how do I get back there? And I said, well, it's probably going to take you, I don't know, about two and a half hours. And you could see this man just going, oh, no, don't make me go back that far on these roads. But anyway, we found him. My neighbours had a little campsite in a meadow. So I said, don't worry, just follow me and I'll take you somewhere. And if they're full, you can sleep in the garden where I am and use the bathroom. It's fine. You're all right. You don't need to panic. But yeah, so that's what it's like trying to decipher because people will say oh how do I get to and they'll say something and you think what and then you have to understand how an English person would have tried to pronounce how it was spelt in Welsh translate that and then translate it into Welsh and then say oh okay you're trying to get here and then tell them how to get there so yeah it's quite fun. <laughs> I spent a day driving around in Wales years ago and with a lovely Welsh lady, and she was teaching me to say, or I asked her to teach me to say that the place name that's the world's longest place name. Oh, yeah, I can't say that. If you put it in front of me, I could say it, but, yeah, I can't remember it, yeah. I, I, got, halfway th- I got halfway through it in a day. And so I, how I learnt <laughs> it was how I learnt it was the same way, say, I would train horses or anything is you – you learn the, you teach them the first bit, uh-huh. until they're really good at it, and then you add the second bit. So now they can do the first bit and the second bit. It's like learning to play a piano, whatever. And so yeah. all the sounds are totally different than in English. Uh-huh. And so I had to learn to yeah. actually to make the, you know, the the, the sounds. <laughs> yeah. And I actually, I don't know how many letters are in that. I think there's forty six letters or something. But I got, I got, mm-hmm. think I got up to twenty, like twenty three. I got halfway through that, and it's. To this day, I can still repeat the part that I learnt without even thinking oh. about it because, because I, I didn't try to learn the whole word because she said, I could try to teach you the word, but no one, ever, no one ever gets it. And I said, well, how do they try to learn it? And she said, well, like, try to say the word. I'm like, well, I'm not going to try to say the word. I want to say the, what's the first bit? And it's something like, I think is, that's, uh-huh. that's the bit yeah. that I got. But that's, that's half yeah. of the, but it was, there was a, the first thing is that sort of sound. Yeah. I think yeah. it is. And then there's, there's a, there's a, is that what it is? And then there's a. Yeah. 
And then there's Woodick Glengaddick, I think, on the top, on the yeah. bottom of that. And I was probably pronouncing yeah. it very poorly, but it was just an, an exercise in learning something that makes no sense to me and doing yeah. all the bits. And I had, I would like, I would drive, we'd be driving around and I'd, be, I'd spend half an hour just doing the one sound like, poof, 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 And yeah, and at the, the bit I learned, the way I learned it, it still sticks with me, you know, six or seven years later. Yeah, so. yeah amazing. And that's North Walian Welsh as well, which is a very particular way of pronouncing things. It's very, very uh, distinctive. It's much oh, really? softer the further south that you come. Yeah. So if you were learning, you were learning a North Walian name, possibly from someone from North Wales. So I think that's really impressive. No, I was actually, I was actually learning a North Walian name from someone from South Wales. We were down okay. in the southern part of Wales. Uh, okay. like she took me to an old coal mine and I toured around there. And yeah, down, you know, yeah, yeah southern, southern Wales it was, but. Yeah, beautiful spot. Um, so tell me about what led you to be an osteopath. Why, why was that your path? Because, you know, an osteo, you know, you've already got a certain way of looking at the world that is, oh, well, sorry, I'm going to back up a bit. This I wrote this term down, right relationship. Mm-hmm. I love that term. So we just, uh, I think I mentioned at the start of the podcast, we bought a new place here and one of the reasons we bought this place is we want to start having trying to do more transformational stuff um you know when i do clinics i travel and do clinics a lot of times those transformational things happen with people because of their interaction with the horse and the things they have to change about themselves to change the issues they're having with their horses or the issue the horse is having with them and (laughs) And, and a lot of times it's a life-changing experience. Like they see how that's related to all the other parts of their life. And yeah. so we decided we want to have more, more of that sort of thing and, and people coming knowing they're, they're having that sort of experience. When you go to a, a, a clinic with a horse, you know, a training clinic, you, you're, not, you're not signing up for this transformational experience. And so on the weekend, we just had a, a, our second retreat that we called Being With Horses and Yourself. Let's name the retreat. And there was a lady there who, um, she has a, a, she lives on the other side of the US and she has a, a trainer that she works with. And the trainer tends to want her to have her horse be more obedient you know, so instead of it being a relationship type thing, it's more a master slave. And I wouldn't say, I don't want to say slave, but you know, boss, yeah. someone yeah. who's told what to do type relationship. And I, and I, and she would say how this trainer would suggest that she solves a certain issue, you know. And I said, well, you could do it that way, but there are some negative outcomes. I said, the way I'm trying to do things is a more of a holistic way of solving the problem to where the problem gets solved and there are no negative outcomes from it. You know, here in the US, if you watch TV that has ads on it, every second ad is for some sort of a big pharma medicine that yep. you take. And at the end, there's like five minutes of may cause heartburn, stroke, you know, mm black eyeballs, your toes might fall off, you know, your hair falls out, you know, you, and that goes yeah. on forever. And I said, the stuff that I'm doing these days with the horses, it seems like not only does it work better, 
but there's it's the, there's no negative outcomes from it. it's not and you, and when you were talking about relationships with the land and you can do things a certain way but there's certain negative outcomes and you're talking about right relationship and I wrote that down I'm like yes that's what we were talking about all weekend is is yeah. right relationship and not not right as in I'm right and they're wrong Mm-mm. but like Mm-mm. like you know you could use the term good or harmonious relationship uh-huh. rather than right relationship but yeah i that 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 whole um way of looking at things i'm getting more and more to where i just want to look at the world that way and this whole land thing you're talking about really fascinates me yeah yeah i mean for me the key word is reciprocity mm. so i feel like you know when you were talking at the beginning of our conversation about indigenous peoples what they still remember is this reciprocity of being, this, the fact that I cannot, no one can do anything in isolation. That's a myth. Well, it's a, it's a complete rubbish thing that we've all been fed. It's part of colonializing our minds and us as people that this thing that if I do something, it's it can happen in isolation. It can't. It's always in reciprocity. And, you know, I love what you were saying about, because I've encountered that in my own work in as an osteopath with horses, as a healer with animals, in the land, in running these horse circles, that whatever happens in these relationships is always not just about that relationship, it's about everything. So everything is embedded with everything. So there's that's where that reciprocity comes from. And, you know, we kind of, we, you and I have been raised in a culture that's forgotten that, you know, and, we, and people think that food comes from a shop or you get sick and you take some tablets or you get a headache and you take some tablets and there's there's no reciprocity in that relationship. If you don't have any tablets, you could maybe go and pick some fever few that you've grown in the garden for your headache and, and relate to the plant spirit and thank the plant and make an offering to the plant. And then there's reciprocity. And you also don't grab the whole plant. You kind of go up and say, how much do I need for my headache today, for example? So there's, so for me, there's, because, and you wouldn't do otherwise because, you're not just damaging that plant, you're damaging yourself, you're damaging something about life if you take the whole plant. And and that kind of disconnected thing of, oh, I can just take something and put it in my body or I can have this food or I can have this response from this horse. Then you have to disconnect from your reciprocity and your embeddedness, your interconnectedness in all of life in order to believe that you've got some right to have what you want and that it will have no effect outside of that moment or that relationship with that horse. And so, yeah, for me, everything's interconnected with everything. And I move in and out because I've been raised in British non-Indigenous culture, I'll catch myself all the time going, ah, that's that's not right relationship. That's not reciprocity of being. And then, okay, right. You know, because I'm teaching people about this and we do this in the horse circle. So I don't feel I can sit there in the position of 
leadership in those circles with any integrity unless I'm constantly catching myself and having realizations about where I've just gone back into that incorrect old paradigm or kind of new it's like a new paradigm really relatively in human history of well I can just do things in isolation so yeah I mean we had a beautiful happening at the horse circle last year so there's a new moon circle that meets um, and they're a closed circle so they're the same people working together and being together with the horses and we always work with the horses when we go out to meet them and we'll take a question an inquiry about along the lines of some detail of how do we live in this reciprocity how do we live in right relationship or how do we come more into right relationship um in our own lives and uh and so we'll send the question out in in heart connection to the horses and they're completely at liberty so they can ignore us completely if they want to and this particular day we came and some of the people in the horse circle a few of them have horses and have history around horses and the others just love something about horse and they're drawn to the being of horse but they have no experience so we always start with you know some kind of fence between us and the horses so that people are not afraid and they can actually engage in what's happening and also it's safe and then what we do is we put names in a hat and and I pick a name out and that's the person that is going to take the question directly more in in a more direct meeting with the horses so this particular day the circle had gathered behind the fence and the person whose name had come out of the hat is actually a very accomplished practitioner. She's an acupuncturist of many, many years. She's highly regarded in this area of Wales and she's a very good friend of mine and she's got horses of her own. She's had horses all her life. And um, anyway, so she went, oh, uh, I want to go to that little black horse over there because it was one of the first meetings with the herd for this circle, uh, this particular herd of horses. And uh, she said, oh, I'm really drawn to that little black horse over there. He's got really sore hips. And she went straight over in this lovely, heart-enthusiastic way to offer him some kind of touch because she's got really good touch, really amazing touch as well. And and I, I knew that this black horse did not welcome human interactions. If you touch him, he'll bite you. And he's called by the, my friend, her, her family call him the vampire because he <laughs> bites people. Because he was in a lot of pain when he came to live with my friend as a young horse. And that, I think, hadn't been recognised. And people had just gone, there's your saddle. And he bit people. And, you know, it's his way of going, that's pain. So, um Anyway, that, so that was what I knew about him. So I knew he would not welcome her going up and, and offering anything. And, and uh, so I said, just let's pause for a minute. I love what you're offering, but can we come back to the circle? And I didn't want to tell her about him. So we came and then we witnessed the horses when we came and sat back in heart connection with them behind the fence. We witnessed the horses as a herd doing some healing with this particular horse and something shifting in the energy. I, would be, I wouldn't be able to articulate the detail of what was happening, but we were all standing there, even the people that don't know about horses, kind of standing there going, gosh, something's happening, something's happening. Don't know what's happening, but something's happening. And they were about probably a good couple of hundred yards away from us, at least on the other side of the field. 
Do you know that horse is completely different? And he's 22. So he's been bitey his whole life. He now will walk up to you in the field and say, hey, do you want to hang out? Would you, can you give me a scratch? Can I just stand next to you? You can hold him when he has his feet trimmed and he doesn't try and bite you, you know. So just for me, that's that when you're in right relationship, it ripples out everywhere. It's not just in that moment. It's like you were saying in the clinic that whatever comes up is always, it's always I don't know. It's always part of the whole. So somebody will say, oh, what came up in this session in your clinic with, you know, that you were describing with the person, that's how their relationships are in their life, you know, in their family and their work, you know, their particular journey through life. There's no, we just believe this disconnection. And I, I don't, I think it's rubbish. I, I don't think there is disconnection. And that's what that right relationship is about in its essence, is realising that we're just part of everything, kind of no more and no less than that. And each of us is unique in that. But but we are just part of a simple part of everything, of all of life. And, and that's what the right relationship is about, essentially. So, yeah. Yeah, you know, the, you're right. We are conditioned to think that, and, and, and it's not a recent thing, um, but if you think about, say, you know, like Descartes, I think, therefore I am, that was that mm. was back when we actually started separating the, the head from the body and, like, the body's just something to carry us around and the head is the important thing and the, the thinking and you're yeah. in your head sort of thing, you know, so it's not recent and, you know, Christianity, you know, the Bible says man must have dominion over the beasts or whatever, you know what I mean? And and it's 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 not recent and it's it's been a long time that everything we're conditioned to think about is this us and them, not it's yeah, that's all interconnected. And so what I you know, it's funny the internet create some problems and all this technology creates some problems. But I think right now there's a, like a, a renaissance of this type of information being shared because it's shareable. Like we're having this podcast. People yeah. are going to listen to this podcast. You know, I, I think in this day and age, there's no reason to be ignorant about any subject. And there's no reason to be ignorant about this because it's, it's available if you want to, if you lived wherever you lived, like in, like, so let's say you lived somewhere in the 50s, the 1950s, whether it was in Scotland or England or Wales or Australia or whatever. You only learnt what the people around you knew and the newspapers you could read and what was mm-hmm. fed to you, spoon fed to you on the TV if you had a TV back then. But yeah, there's these yeah. days, there's just so much, um, so much information available. Yeah, I agree with you. I do agree with you. And I also feel that you can access that information and absorb it and do something with it as long as you're not in survival mode. You know, I think that there is people out there that are in survival mode, you know, because their physical circumstances are really difficult, Um, you know, even in this country. 
Um, and I think when you're when you're under that kind of stress, then you might you might access the information, but you don't know how to you don't know how to use it. Um, uh, and then I feel like part of the responsibility in that right relationship for for people who can access it and work out what to do with it because you're not in survival mode is that in doing what we do and coming into more and more of that right relationship that we're able to kind of put that energy signature out into the world and and that then kind of lends a support to people that are in are in difficult circumstances like yeah um and and those and those ripples that I was talking about, they they kind of move out and embrace everybody and all the different kinds of life, you know, not even just humans. So I think, yeah, you're right. It has been around for a long time, but um, it has been around for a long time, and so it's got very settled into our thinking. But I wonder if the history of humans doing something other than believing in that separation. And it's separation, like you said, of mind and body is much older. So we're trying to get oh. back to something, yeah, that's much, much more original. And um, and my experience is that when we do that, that the land and the more than human beings kind of get really happy and, and celebrate. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, if you look at, look at um, you know, how long humans have been around and how long we've been conditioned to think this way, it's a very, it's a very short time. We, yeah. we, spent, we lived the other way a whole lot longer. Um, I want to ask you about, you said you talked about doing shamanic training. Mm. What, how long did you do that for? Oh, um, I guess the, the first bit I did would have been over one, two, Five six years maybe, yeah, yeah. In that, and um, can you can you uh, condense that five or six years down into a couple of sentences? <laughs> you know, like what's what's the crux of the whole thing? What? Yeah. What, you know, um, what is the what's the what's the basis of the whole thing? I mean, basically, essentially, what I learned was Michael Harner's work of what he calls Western shamanism. Uh, which is a practice of usually using a drum or a rattle to create a repetitive beat to move your brain waves out of the brainwave state that most of us are in, which is beta, into at least alpha, the slower next kind of brainwave state down, to be able to open up your imaginal capacity to then move into and become open to other kinds of life and other kinds of experience. And there's a map that he's kind of made of the spirit worlds, if you like, so that you can navigate your way through through those different territories. Um, yeah, so that's essentially it. And out of that, the reason I was particularly interested in it is because in my animal osteopathy practice, I was encountering trauma, what we would now call PTSD in the animals quite regularly. And I was perceiving in that sort of shut down dissociative state that something of the animal was missing and not there. And then I heard about what they call in that particular 
uh, type of shamanic work, soul retrieval, which is about bringing back the bit of the energy field that split off at the moment of overwhelm, at the moment of trauma and bringing it back. And there's a whole methodology for that. And I got really, really, really interested in, oh, is this a methodology that I could learn that would allow me to help these animals that are shut down. Because if an animal's shut down and dissociated from their body and you, and I'm coming as an osteopath to offer some body work, it either won't have much therapeutic effect at all or it'll have a very limited effect or a very short-lived effect. And once you bring that animal fully back into integration um, and presence in their own body and in their emotional and feeling experience, then they're much more responsive to to body work so for example so i just got really curious about oh is this a methodology that would make a big difference um in my practice because you know when you're a practitioner you're always wanting to help more and more and more you know you kind of always wanting to know oh it's not the cases where it works brilliantly that stay with you it's the ones where you go oh that was a real head scratcher i don't know what i could have done different how could i have how could i have helped more and you know it's like the the grit in the oyster you know that kind of it's like a question the pearl is a question or how do i do this differently in the future you know it's so interesting you say that about the shutdown ones because for quite a while now I'm probably, I'm not encountering more of them. I'm just more aware of it and levels of it. But with people I'm trying to help with their horses, there's levels of shutdown. And, and you know, the same with the osteopathy. You can't communicate, you know, whatever work you do with them doesn't go in. They don't take it in while they're in that state. And so I've been, I mean, I think there's a lot of different ways of doing things, but I've been developing ways of doing things to bring them out of shutdown first before you even worry about trying to do the next thing. And it's almost like almost every horse has, not every, but, but, you know, have some level of shutdown. If you think about, think about in the wild, let's say a horse is um, grazing and then, uh, the saber-toothed tiger comes along, and so the horse runs away from the saber-toothed tiger, so you go off into fight-or-flight mode. Yeah. You either outrun the tiger. Yeah. Well, let's, let's, go with, let's go with a fawn and a lion. Let's put it that way, like a, a deer yeah. and a lion. So the deer yeah. runs off, and they either outrun the lion or the lion catches them. Okay, yeah. if they outrun the lion, they've been fight-or-flight, and after they outrun the lion, after a while, they'll return back down to relaxation. But yeah. if the lion catches them... There's no use being in flight and fight when yep. the lion's got a hold of you because you'll tear yourself to shreds on their teeth. So you go in, you go limp, you go into yep. freeze mode, yep. and you get taken back to where the lion has their cubs, and they either eat you and you're dead, or the lion puts you down for a minute because he thinks you're incapacitated and goes to do something with the cubs, and all yep. of a sudden you come out of that and you have fight or flight and you run away. Yeah. So. I don't think that prolonged shutdown in the natural world exists no, for the most part. You, mm-hmm. you, you're either in shutdown and when you get to the shutdown stage, you either die mm-hmm. or you get away and you go back through that fight or flight state and you, yeah. you release that energy and now you're back to normal. And, and uh, there's a book, I forget who the 
guy who wrote it, Robert Sapolter, I think his name was, and it was oh, called yeah, Why yeah. Zebras Don't Have Ulcers. That's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and so yeah. it's not a normal state to be in, and it's the same with us. Yeah. You know, the, the, the lives that people live these days, they get up, they do their nine to five, go sit at a desk, look at the screen, whatever, got the boss, got all the, mm-hmm. you know, we're not supposed to live in that, that we're not supposed to live in that, that state of low-level stress either. We're supposed to be either happy and relaxed or whatever and then, yeah. hey, there's a dinosaur that's going to kill us and, yeah, and then we go back to what we're doing. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Um, and I think in your example, you know, if the fawn or the deer did stay in shutdown mode, they wouldn't eat, they wouldn't drink, they, would, they wouldn't be part of their herd anymore. And they would become somebody's dinner within 24 hours, you know, in the yeah, wild. Well, but think about, think about this. Why would they stay in shutdown mode? There's yeah, no, no you know, they like wouldn't. They're, they they're, wouldn't. Not, they're yeah, not supposed yeah. to stay in shutdown yeah, mode. They're yeah, not yeah. Spo- like it's supposed to serve its purpose and yeah. you, it numbs your body out because you could be getting eaten alive and you don't want to yeah. feel that. Yeah. And, you know, all the blood rushes from the, the extremities to the internal organs – because we don't need to, we don't need to access our muscles right now. We want to put blood in our body cavity in case we get punctured by a tooth. Yeah, yeah. Keep our major organs alive. Yeah. And it's a temporary state you're supposed to use to help you out either till you die or yeah. until you can get free. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, I don't, I don't think horses evolved any different than that. Like they haven't evolved to be domesticated as far as the nervous system's the nervous system. And I think the human nervous system's the same too. And I agree with you. I think the difference between the deer and the horses is the deer is in the wild, like you said, and they won't survive for more than a day probably if they're in shutdown. Whereas we keep the horses alive because we keep giving them food and water and they've got shelter and we protect them from predators. And so they can survive in some degree of shutdown, just like humans can. Um, And they learn it, I think, as, well, this is how I can you know, well, they just can carry on existing because that shutdown state is kind of supported by the way, like you said, we've domesticated them. But I, I right. agree with you; it's not a normal response at all. Um, yeah, it's very destructive to the, every layer of being of a horse or a person or any animal or, or any kind of life to be in that state for any length of time. Yeah. Yeah, and the thing with like with I help people with their horses either as far as you know, I help them get along with their horses better. I help them achieve what they want to do with their horses. And mm. the thing on lots of horses I see, people are trying to teach the horse to do something while they're in a shutdown mode. Yeah. And and they either the horses either, you know, are very very dull and non-responsive or they go from shutdown to Flight fight, and then the, you know, like I've got this really quiet horse. I can't get him to go, but when I'm out trail riding, all of a sudden he Woof. explodes yeah. and bucks me off. And it's it is just a dysregulated nervous system. And the thing these yeah. days, I'm really everything I'm doing with the horses and everything I'm teaching people is about number one, regular having that horse's system nervous system regulated. And a lot of that for me comes down to connection to the connection work. That, yeah. The, yeah. the, the, 
you know, the you know, mammals are social creatures. Well, I'll talk about the lady that was here on the weekend. Her horse wants to engage with her a lot, wants to come up and be in her space a lot. And, you know, I, I was telling people when horses are doing that, it's like shaking hands. They're coming up to say hi and I will engage them and stuff. But it may get to a point to where they're kind of pushy. And this lady said that her trainer wants her to, you know, make the, ho- make the horse back up. Yeah. And I said, well, you can, you can do that, but I think you are basically communicating, I don't wish to engage with you. Mm. Basically... Mm-hmm. shut up, stop communicating with me. And I said, you get some, some of the fallout from that will be if you tell the horse to stop telling you how they feel, they may stop telling you how they feel and then you may miss some very vital information that might save your life when you're riding them. Um, and the other, But the other part of it is, is when you get that disconnect is I don't think their nervous system's functioning as well as it should and so now you're not dealing with a real real horse and I was just trying to show these people some ways you can end that conversation so they're not pushing into you without actually saying no without actually making a correction I, and then this is this right relationship thing you're talking about I said we we will get to where these horses are not trying to push into us but we haven't actually created any poor outcomes we don't have any may cause headaches, loss of teeth, toes might fall off. (laughs) You you don't have any of, you still achieve what you're trying to achieve, um, but you you don't have any negative outcomes. And it comes to this thing you're talking about, this right relationship, this, yeah, I I love it. That's all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all the same. Yeah. And for me, that word you used, connection, you know, because when I was um, working as a cranial osteopath with horses, uh, particularly, and other animals sometimes, and there was that shutdown. The first thing I had to get was connection with them. And, you know, the uh, because like you were saying, it was a safety thing for me, you know. I would be right by the horse offering them a treatment, and if I had my hands on somewhere that provoked a vulnerable response in them, they can come out of shutdown into fight-flight behaviour, which either means that, Teeth and feet are coming flying in my direction or I get slammed into a wall because they move really quickly. And and like you said, it happens in a split second. And so what I had to do was also start to listen to them and learn how to listen to them because I think human beings, me included, are not very good at listening. And I kind of feel like I've worn the phrase out, but I've said so many times in my practice over the years as an osteopath and then as a healer and animal communicator and now teaching um, with people and teaching animal communication that actually I'm really clear who the dumb animals are on this planet and I'm one of them because their capacity to listen and sense is just beyond extraordinary to me as a modern 21st century human being and and so what I had to learn to do with those shut down horses and dogs and other animals was to learn to listen to them and 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 they're connected and be in right relationship by being in, I am listening, how's that? I'm listening, how's that? How's that? What's your experience? And just be in, you know, when I learned um, osteopathy, I eventually learned an oral tradition within the profession. So it's not written down, it's just passed on because when it was originally um, kind of discovered and then begun to be taught, some people in the profession tried to shut it down 
because it's a bit out there, you know, at how how you work and it's not really a spectator sport. There's nothing much to see. You're just no. very gently placing yeah. your hands, yeah. And um and so um so because of that, they went, right, we're not writing this down anymore. We're just gonna teach it orally from osteopath to osteopath so that it can stay intact. And um and I remember that one of the primary teachings of the person who was the key driver, a key osteopath in bringing this oral tradition out kind of more widely into the osteopathic profession was he, he would say, be efferent, which means be listening, be the bit of your nervous system that's receiving, you know, that's receiving the sounds and the textures and the tastes and the smells and, and the visual stuff and, and all the other sixth senses. Just be in listening, like listen to your patients. Do not go, because when you're an osteopath, you learn all these really clever techniques. And when, you're oste when you learn cranial osteopathy, they kind of move in another league of fineness in terms of their cleverness. And it's really easy to get enamoured with your own cleverness in the end you know you kind of go well if I just do this here and that there and my very clever hands um and you you will bring about a change but you actually have to learn to listen and respond to what is called for in that moment and your agenda has to stay out of the window which I guess is another kind of right relationship so yeah so it's about yeah, just being in that constancy of listening and waiting as well, I suppose, for the moment to respond. Because there's that timing thing with horses, isn't there? There's, you know, there's, there's, there's the kind of the moment that like that sweet spot, which can be a single split second or much longer. But there's, you know, there, and for me, that's about the right relationship being in the context of something much better bigger than you or I can possibly begin to conceive of and we just have to be in the right relationship and responsive in this moment to what is right in front of us and then we'll be in right relationship to you know everything else beyond that so yeah yeah we talked about that quite a, I talked about that quite a bit at the weekend with the retreat we had here about about there's a time to be a leader and a time to be a follower and you and part of the the having it work you know you can just be dominant all the time if you want to but in order for this relationship to work you've got to be able to choose the time when you can take over the leadership role and then you've mm -hmm. got to be able to choose the time when you give up the leadership role and it doesn't work if you are if you choose the wrong time to take over the leadership role and it gets wrestled away from you, that is yeah. not choosing to be a follower. That is losing the leadership. Yeah. And it you were you were talking before about your dad was a mariner. Mm. Okay. And an, and I was thinking about my son, he lives in Hawaii and he has a sailboat and he sails, okay. but he also surfs. And if you want to ride the wave, there is a time to start paddling really fast. Yeah. And if you don't get it right, mm -hmm. you miss the wave. Mm -hmm. And you've got to be forced in the right direction and all those things. And you can try and fight the ocean and you're not going to get anywhere at all. And it's the same with sailing. And that's the thing I think, you know, sailing is, 
you know, the little bit I've been out sailing with my son, he loves it because you are interacting with the elements. You're interacting with the water. You're interacting with the yeah. wind. You're reading the wind. You're reading the weather. And it's this constant conversation. If you want to get to where you want to go, you have to be in right relationship yeah. with the elements, the water, the wind, the storms, the whatever, and you're always – looking at that stuff and calculating, okay, what should I do here? What should I do here? You're not just driving a power boat, you know, a, mm. a motorboat that just goes, I'm going where I want to go and I'm going there now. Yeah. It's this whole conversation with the elements. And I think mm. that's the thing with the horses. It's this, if you're doing it the way I like to do it these days, it's everything's a conversation. There's give and take. Yeah. And then the art is knowing when you can take and when you can yeah. give and, yeah, it's it's mm. very cool. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I I would have the same thing, you know, when I was a cranial osteopath because I when I qualified there wasn't a training course in osteopathy with animals, so I was self-taught. But I wasn't really self-taught. I just had to get my what my opinions were and what my training, the best guess I had, my best working out with my training, I had to get that out of the way. And it was actually the animals who taught me. And and I'm sure you can identify this with this with what you do. You know, there would be times where the information, the gut knowing I would get from wherever, from the wisdom in the universe, from the from the horse or the dog or whoever I was treating would be, well, if you treat that bit there and you release this, and I'd think, how on earth does that relate to what I think I'm doing here? But I would just do it and then, da-da, you know, it would be like all the dominoes would fall down. There would be this big change and I'd think, I know nothing. You know, I went and did all this training for all those years and actually, I mean, yeah, yeah, horses blow me away. I remember where my horse used to be. She was in a field and I was treating one of the other horses who was, um, he was an Andalusian and he was 13 and he'd been a stallion, a working stallion till he was 11. And uh, so he was a bit of a handful sometimes. And I was there in the field treating him and, and he'd got this very locked bit in his spine. And, uh, and um and my best guess and training was what I was doing. And my horse looked up from the other side of the field and she looked right at me and she said, compress that like this. And I went, no, I can't compress it. You know, that would, that would really irritate the tissues. And she just went, she visibly kind of went, oh, you know, eye roll. I mean, not literally, but you could see in her, in her sort of demeanour, it was like, oh, for heaven's sake. And she came over and she must have been 50 yards away. She came over and she put her muzzle down and looked at me in a really pointed way, exactly where my hands were, and compressed this bit of the, these two vertebrae that were locked together in his spine. And then she did that and he kind of went, oh, and he made a bit of a face. And I thought, oh, I'm just stepping back because he might be about to explode because he was quite explosive. Right. And then he just went, oh, and the vertebra jumped into position. And then he went, oh, you know, the classic, oh, stretch my back, lick and chew, lots of yawning. And my horse just kind of went, yeah, that was all you needed to do. Until, well, she didn't speak to me like that, but, you know, she just went back to grazing, <laughs> right. as they would say, like, it's all sorted now. And the humans learnt something. So, yeah, I just, 
that's right relationship. The horse knows exactly what needs to be done in that moment. And I'm just the little human who's got all my training and everything else and my opinions in the way. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. I love what you're doing with the horses and the people. It's it's fun stuff. Um, I was You mentioned earlier on, I want to get back to the shamanic training because you said, you know, you did this shamanic training that was Western shamanism, but but it felt like it was uh, tilted or too structured or something or other. Mm. Where did you go with your Where did you go with your shamanism practice after that? What How did that develop? Yeah, well, um, so initially I was taught the classic thing that you will learn on a on a Michael Hana based training, which is you go on a journey and you're using your drum and rattle and you'll go journeying look, looking for the lost energy, the lost part of the the patient, if you like. You're going looking for what they call the soul part and you'll locate that and you might have to do a certain amount of negotiating or whatever. And then you bring it back and the classic thing is that you blow it in to the person and usually you're blowing it into the heart unless your spirit guides are telling you to do something else and um so i did learn a methodology for doing this remotely um with animals so that you didn't have to blow on them because you could imagine if you've got a traumatized shut down animal and you blow something into their body they might go what the heck are you doing and then you get the jumping out of shutdown like you were talking about earlier into fight flight mode and it gets a bit dangerous or they just think you're really weird and don't want to engage with you so um I guess for me I had to learn to stand there and recognize that there was soul loss at whilst I was being an osteopath giving a cranial osteopathy treatment and go off and look for the soul part in the circumstances in which it gets lost because the understanding is when that energy splits off it gets located in that time and space and so you have to go back to that traumatic event as it were Mm. where it's located in time and space and then bring it back to the now and then I would put it back in with my intent because energy responds to clear intent if you have clear intent it responds to that and so I would have to do that without drumming, rattling. I'd have to learn to get myself at least into alpha brainwaves in order to be able to make that connection at the same time as staying very present because you can't, I'm not going to stand next to a horse with my eyes closed, kind of zoning off into an altered state of consciousness. I have to learn to do what horses do, which is kind of be in both worlds at the same time. You know, they're Mm. standing there eating, doing their thing, but they're also present to everything that's moving around them you know when when they're out on the land just being horses as a herd so um I guess they showed me how to do that so that was how I started to integrate it and when you said at the beginning of 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 this chat that um when I was telling you how I got started doing the or about working with the the land and the animals that you would have you know ten years ago thought well that's a bit wacko what happened to me was mm, I had a little cat that was in the house where I lived this is many years ago, probably nearly thirty years ago, and she got sick and the 
the homeopathic um, vet tried everything. He tried acupuncture and he did homeopathy and and she had antibiotics. And uh, anyway, so she had this whole re- gamut of treatment and she didn't get any better. She had an eye infection. So one day this thought dropped in, oh, maybe I could treat her even though I'm a few hundred miles away. And I could just sort of imagine she's in my lap and see if I can sense anything and give her a treatment. And so I sat down. I, I noticed I thought this and thought, oh, that's a bit weird. But anyway, I did it one day because another week went by and she was still no better with this eye infection. <clears throat> so I sat down and I went into a slower brainwave state and imagined she was in my lap. And what I picked up was that the tear duct, the bone that the tear duct was in, in the eye socket was jammed. And it had got jammed because she'd been intubated when this had happened because she'd been spayed. So they put a tube to put the anaesthetic in um, during the operation. And they'd, I mean, just she was a tiny little cat and the, the palate bone on the roof of the mouth had got jammed and that jamming had gone up through the face into the bottom of the eye socket, jammed up the tear duct, which then got blocked, which was why she'd got this one-sided eye infection that wouldn't go away. So I treated her like she was in my lap. And while I was doing it, I was thinking what are you doing? You're making this up. This is rubbish, but I can feel it. But this is rubbish. This is not possible. And anyway, she got better. Like literally the next day, she was 50% better. She could actually open her eye that had been stuck shut for six weeks. And then the next day, it was all completely fine. And it freaked me out so much, I didn't do it again until I let met this Lakota medicine man who said, you can do remote healing and you can tell when he's listening to his spirit allies. He said, you can do remote healing. I said, no, I can't. No, I can't. But he was persistent. And so eventually I gave in, but it was more than 15 years later. So all of these things kind of, yeah, kind of wove together. And the shamanic training gave me a very specific methodology to make connection and go and find spirit allies that would work with me. So I then had access to other kinds of information. So if I was a bit flummoxed, I could kind of connect with a spirit ally and say, can you help me out on this one and get very specific information. But like I said, I often had to learn to do it simultaneously while I was appearing to be completely normal and, and, you know, not doing anything unusual. (laughs) So, yeah. That's got to be tough. I'm, I'm fascinated by some of the stuff you're saying. So when you, can you explain to me what it, what you experience when you go and meet this spirit ally? Um, is there any way, is, is it visual? Is it auditory? Is it, do you get a feeling or is it all of the above? Are you like you're in another dimension? Like, is it more real than this one? Yeah. Uh, what, what, I think uh, it depends how I'm doing it. So if I'm doing it and attempting to appear normal on the outside, then I can sit and be completely present to this reality. And it's like uh, there's a a veil of some description nearby that I can sense through, but it's also woven in with this world as well. 
So it's as if I'm simultaneously in two places. It must be a bit like seeing something different with your two eyes sim- simultaneously mm. or like hearing, you know, we could be at a party and there's some music on at the background and, and we're talking and I'm listening to you, but I might also be listening to the music and aware of the other people talking in the room as well. So you've kind of got attention simultaneously and in, in different places. And when I'm perceiving that world... A lot of people talk about seeing and when I'm teaching that skill to people, I'll say don't get hung up on visuals because you'll sense it in some way and you'll just know. So I don't, I can't really see auras, but I could read somebody's aura and tell you what colours are in it and, you know, what's moving around in the aura, but I'm feeling it somehow. It's like a felt sense and then I translate that into visual colors so for me a color has got a particular feeling sensing vibration so when i'm in in uh, meeting with those spirit allies then i'm sensing them and that gets translated somewhere in me into a visual thing an auditory thing i might smell something i might taste something less commonly um I might have textural experiences in my felt sense, yeah. But um, I think when you're first learning it, you very much go in a process of I am here and now I'm lifting up my energetic body or my awareness, my consciousness, and I'm directing it through clear intent that I'm going to go to a certain place in the spirit world and meet meet them and there's a very specific map and navigation for that um and that's how you learn it in the beginning and that was certainly the way that I learned it but I think I've pretty quickly had to learn to do to be able to be completely present to this reality and the other one at the same time um yeah so the first when you first learned it um was it like when when it first you know let's say the first time you experienced it was it like the veil between this world and that world was thin or were, did you were you just there and not here or could you you know you know how you said you like you could be yeah. at a party and you could hear the music and talk to the person did you have that experience in the beginning or is it just one or the other initially and then as you get further along you can kind of exist yeah. in both yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I can remember the first times I did it, I, like, nothing happened, you know, and, and there is this thing, you know, when you're, when you're on a shamanic training in that way, that there'll be people who kind of, you know, they'll get set their intent for the journey and they'll be following the drum or the drum and the rattle or just the rattle. And, and they're listening, you know, they're following that rhythm and they'll come back and they'll, kind of tell you that they went to this amazing landscape and they met all these spirit beings and they had an incredible time and you're sitting there and you think well I think I saw something that was a bit green maybe and I think Mm. I was there but I'm not sure you know and 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 then you you have that thing of feeling like oh I'm the only person in the room that didn't kind of go somewhere and meet rainbow colored bears and unicorns or something you know being a bit silly (laughs) but but you know and you just learn over time what your way of sensing is because we've all got different ways of sensing and different ways of perceiving things and 
and and it's different for all of us at different times and my way of sensing has developed over the years as well so yeah yeah Ooh, that's interesting what you just said because i have um done some healing journeys with different psychedelics only in a healing sense i've never had fun with them at all and the experiences i have had have not been the same experiences other a lot of other people say they had they met this spirit guide and they went here and they went there and i've and i've always been half wondering am i doing it wrong you know like whatever but i do i do come back with information and i do have i do let go of things and process things and work through traumas or whatever but i'm I'm not having the same experience that a lot of other people do. And and you just kind of maybe put my mind at ease a little bit. Like yeah. it doesn't have to be a certain way it, because they've all been benefit. When I've done it, it's been beneficial, but it just hasn't been the same uh, experience that other people have. So that yeah, might, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, in the horse circles when, because one of the things that we do is, we do a spirit a journey with the drums to go mm. and meet with the horse nation in the spirit world. And, and because I've, you know, the circle that is closed and that meets regularly, they're all practiced in doing that now. Although some people have, were very practiced in it before they joined the horse circle. Um, but some people complete beginners. And when I run open circles, you know, people are, um, you know, there's everything from really experienced to never done it before. So I actually narrate the journey so that people can follow my voice, you know, and mm. I don't just set them off on the journey because I haven't got all day to teach them how to do this skill. And uh, and it's amazing the things that people come back with, you know, and everybody, there'll be some things that are the same and then other people will just come through with the most incredible, beautiful, beautiful experiences that are just, you know, in the closed circle, we're talking because the horses have been talking to us in the spirit world about this, about the way that we weave things together and all the threads are important and part of the weave, you know. Um, so, yeah, I love it that you have something that's different. Because yeah. I think when you're mm. learning it, you can get a bit stuck on what it's supposed to be and or a preconceived idea from somewhere about how it should be or how to get an A, you know, you're learning something right. and you desperately want to get it right, you know, and feel like you did okay. And I love it that you come back with something that is quite unique. Like, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting stuff. You know, we are talking earlier about, you know, how in – our culture, we are conditioned not to look at things certain ways or whatever, and we're talking about different ways that that's happened. Um, you know, one of them is organised religion trying to, you know, put their agenda on us or control the masses. Another one was, you know, like things like I think, therefore I am, like separation of the head from the body, but. Listen to you talk, I'm thinking if you'd existed in the UK in the Middle Ages, you'd have been burned at the stake. I absolutely And so would. Do, you, do you think that there was, and that was all religious stuff too, but do you think a lot of this way of looking at things was lost at that, 
at that time. There was a lot of religious persecution for for looking at things in this way. Mm, I, I think that was a very important breaking point in our relationship in the British Isles, for sure, in uh, breaking our relationship with the land and, and the more than humans and understanding ourselves as part of it. I think it started before that, for sure, because in, in, in the British Isles we had the Roman invasion from 430 was that right yeah until just mm. yeah or was it a bit i can't remember the dates now i can't hold numbers in my head at the moment but uh yeah so there was sort of over 400 years of roman occupation and a key part of the resistance from the tribes of britain towards the roman invasion was the druids and um in wales they would be sent to the isle of anglesey which was called mona in north wales um to undergo training and it would be at least 20 years of training. They would just go off from their community and go and study there. And the Druids were key in maintaining a spy network that allowed the sort of guerrilla warfare and the resistance from the tribes that were attempting to resist the Roman occupation. And uh, towards the end of the time, there was a governor who was sent to Britain to break the Druids because they'd understood that that's what they needed to do. And so he arrived and, and I think he was, it was basically made clear, do it or don't come back because you'll wish you hadn't come back if you haven't succeeded kind of thing. And so he came here and that is what they did. They systematically made sure that they killed all the Druids and any children, young people that could potentially become Druids. And so the, the breaking in that connection was was in large part happened as a result of that. And then the remnants of it in terms of people that, like you said, like me, um, or herbalists, people who understood the herbal law of the land, for example, people who would do what I did, which would be to go and, you know, give offerings of flowers to the river or you know, just make some prayers and put my hands in the river, for example, nearby or make a relationship with a tree. It became lethal to do that and it became lethal knowledge to have. Um, and and people got terrorised into kind of, you know, telling on their community members and family members. So, yeah, there was certainly um, a lot of loss of that kind of information. But I found out recently, I found a book in our local library. We have this amazing local library here. It's very, very small. It must have only about a thousand books in it. And they had this book, which was um, based in historical research that Wales didn't actually kill anyone by burning or drowning during that time, that they actually had a respect for those people and knew that they were important people in the community. Um, so yeah, there's a so that so there is a some lineage here in in Wales still still very present. Yeah. Well, Kathy Price told me that the area that you guys live in, because you're not very far from Kathy, you're no, sixty miles 60 from Kathy. Sixty miles or so, yeah. Yeah, um, the area that you guys lived in was like Druid Central sort of thing. Like mm. it was a very spiritual sort of place. How much, how much about the history of that dinner? You know? Yeah, I mean, I don't know so much about where Kathy is, but 
you know, just looking out the window here, I'm looking at a piece of the Priscelli Mountains and on the other side of the Priscelli Mountains are stone circles, standing stones that would have mm. certainly been ceremonial sites and offering sites. There's the remnants of old homesteads from Iron Age people for sure, possibly earlier than that. Um, there's burial chambers where they buried their dead in ceremonial ways. So, yeah, it, it certainly, there's certainly, you know, still the physical evidence of, of those peoples and, and that connection, yeah. You mentioned earlier that the stone, because some people might not be aware of this, but the, the, the stone, some of the stone at Stonehenge is not... Um, from that area, it's actually from where you are in yeah. Wales there. And if you think about those big stones in Stonehenge yeah, that were transported somehow from where you are, and it's got to be, what is it, two or 300 miles? Yes, 250 miles or so, yeah. Okay. Across from, the river as well, you know. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and you've got to think about, what were they thinking? And I don't mean like they're idiots. What were they thinking? I'm thinking, what were they thinking? Why was it important to take that particular stone of that size from that place and move it to that place? And I'm like, what, where were they getting this information from? You know, like yeah, yeah, what, yeah. What, what was telling them to do this and what was the reason for it? And, yeah, yeah. very f fascinating stuff. Um, a minute ago, you're talking about uh, when I was talking about you know burning witches at the stake and that sort of thing, and you said yes here in here in the British Isles, blah 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 blah, but it wasn't just there in the British Isles because I mean it was there, but then when Great Britain became Great Britain and colonised you yeah. know three quarters of the world, they took that with them you know it's like yeah. it's uh, and it wasn't just the british but like in, like say in uh you know like the northern parts of south america bottom parts of north america like the where the aztecs and the mayans were and and things like that yeah when the spaniards first came they said you can't have your indigenous practices you have to do what we you cannot you cannot um you know you cannot use uh, mescaline or whatever you're using to reach spiritual enlightenment, you have to drink our communal wine and pretend that this is the body of somebody else. You know, the, yeah. So it wasn't just the Brits, but the Brits did conquer most of the world and colonize most of the world and take that that mindset with them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's that way that kind of trauma gets handed down through generations. So mm. there was that breaking of the tribes of Britain, because I don't know anything about the history of the Spaniards, but, you know, the Roman invasion, the Roman occupation was, you know, across large sections of Europe, if not all of what we would now call Europe, you know, and... Uh, and it was a brutal culture. I mean, they used to have gladiators fighting each other to death as, as entertainment and, you know, crucifying people. It was a fairly brutal way to kill someone, you know. And, uh, and so there was this sort of brutalization within that culture. And then 
people got brutalized as a result of it and then they go and export it you know um uh to whatever culture they encounter somewhere else you know in, in that colonization um yeah it and then it gets spread around and i feel like i feel like one of the things that we're trying to do in the world is is to is to in that you said the key thing in right relationship is connection well one of the things that happens in trauma is you disconnect you lose hmm. your capacity to make these good rich listening connections with other kinds of being and yourself you know and your be- beloved ones even um and yeah and so trauma kind of begets trauma quite quickly it seems to me and and it yeah it just creates that kind of disconnection and then it you know and then we disconnect people from their practices these indigenous practices of being in right relationship with the water that they drink and the you know the animals and the plants that give them food and the land that gives that and the rain and the weather and everything else and and then it gets perpetuated and then people are in a place of being traumatized and then lots of behaviors result out of that that maintains the disconnection so yeah so i agree with you that lots of cultures have done that and britain's really done it when it was powerful in that kind of way and exported its trauma um to all kinds of indigenous people all over the world and started to break their connection so yeah yeah exported its trauma that's quite this it's quite the sentence um somewhere in there you mentioned something about purpose and i thought oh we've got these questions we need to ask you that you chose before we finish up here (laughs) one of the ones one of the questions you chose was what does you feel is your true purpose in the world Uh, i i yeah i mean i feel like what i'm doing now i feel as if everything i have ever experienced the difficult and the good or what you think of as good the rich um has brought me to where i am now um to one wanting to be a part like do my tiny little drop in the ocean part of reimagining what the world could be like and how we could be in relationship with each other and with all the different kinds of life on the earth and then what might become on the earth when we start to be able to do that more and more so yeah letting the ripples of that move out into the world so I feel like my tiny contribution to the drop of that ocean is that combination of doing the healing work and and offering these places to meet with horses and to remake that relationship with horse in a different way and to kind of recognize them as beings that have done this journey with us for these what five and a half thousand years since the first people started to domesticate horses that they've kind of done this whole incredible journey with us and now we can meet with them and allow them, like you were saying, you know, it's not about do this, do that. It's about being in what you were talking about, connection and listening and seeing if the horse can start to show us how to be in that right relationship, how to allow something to arise in the moment that we co-create with the horse and play around with who's who's leading that process in this moment uh, and now you're leading it in this moment and staying alive and kind of agile and able to be responsive to what what's happening that's that's my journey and 
I guess I'm, I always uh, feel like we're always teaching what we most need to learn and also what I most long to learn as well. You know, so I always feel like whenever I'm leading something, I'm just getting much more learning opportunities and teachings than the people that are gathered there. So, yeah. Oh, I think I think if they say if you want to if you want to learn something really good, teach it. Yeah, yeah. Learn to, learn to teach it. You know, like yeah. Because yeah, in in the teach, I, I find like doing clinics and stuff, explaining things to people, explaining what's going on in front of me with the horse, whatever. Mm. At times, I will say something I've never said before. I don't know where that came from. It's like, yeah. oh, that makes so much sense. Like you yeah. in the in the trying to communicate your interpretations of what's happening in front of you, you some, I think you sometimes get deeper, um, you know, you see deeper truths in things that you, you know, it's that, that spiral thing like, yeah, I used to thought I understand that and now, yes, I just had a, a yeah. thing where I understand that on a, on, a, on a deeper level. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, the next question, what book do you recommend the most? Not necessarily your favourite book, but the book that you recommend that others read. Uh, I I think probably the one is Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. Yeah, yeah, yeah you know that one. I just think mm-hmm. that is – I just go back to that book over and over again. I've got a copy of it and I've got it, you know, audio with beautiful Robin reading it. I just feel like I'm getting a teacher from an elder and all of her elders behind her about that right relationship, the reciprocity of relationship that we're in. And and just from someone who sounds and feels to me like she's really humble, she comes from this lineage that, you know, standing behind her, I, I, I love it as a book, I, yeah. It's, it's a kind of have it there all the time because you can just open it anywhere and it will speak to you in that moment. Yeah. One of those sorts of books, yeah. yeah. Um, what do you do or where do you go to relieve stress or recharge your batteries? Well, I live there because <laughs> I live in the National Park. So for me, it's somewhere out on the land. It's quite often in the presence of horses I've got particular places on the land where I've got relationship with a piece, you know, a rock. I've got rocks that I've got relationships with that I go and make offerings to. And if I've got a question, I'll take a question, you know, that's puzzling me or bothering me. Um, um, I might go if I'm feeling really stressed and the horses remind me. Because when we get stressed, our focus gets very closed in, doesn't it? And they always remind me to let my... my awareness kind of open up to everything, you know, and all the beauty that we're surrounded by all the time. So, yeah, for me, it's always what we would say out in nature somewhere. And what what's the luckiest thing that ever happened to you? Yeah, I kind of – I was thinking about that question a lot because um, I kind of feel that there isn't one thing in particular – I feel like they come to you when you're least expecting it. The way that life will just gift you an encounter with someone or or you'll read something and it can be a really big deal or it can just be something tiny in the moment and and it just sets you back 
to your navigation into true north or it reminds you who you really are or what you're really about. So I think an example of that for me would be being in equine sport and kind of thinking, oh, this doesn't feel like what I'm meant to be doing forever. And somewhere I'm getting a bit broken because there's something about it that's not quite right, but I don't know how to navigate my way from that feeling to something else. And I came across Linda Kahanov's book, The Tao of Equus. I couldn't stop reading it because it spoke to that instantly. And then literally three weeks later, I was in the middle of the thick of the competitive season in Taos, New Mexico, doing a workshop with her, spending money that I didn't have because I'd just paid for an osteopathic post-grad training. And then I came home and bought a four grand dressage horse, <laughs> having no money. And... uh and that's the horse in the picture in the bio who got me to where I am now, you know. So, and that was how I met, you know, this this Lakota community and got those teachings. She, the horse, set me on the journey of learning shamanic work and understanding trauma and 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 and. There's so many things in there. So I don't know. That would be an example. That would be an example of. A luckiest thing that ever happened but yeah what a good one um and what quality do you admire it most do you admire it do you admire most in a, a person i think for me there's two and they're kind of related uh it's it's integrity and kindness and uh and that's something that i aspire to you know when i'm in my practice my healing practice or when I'm in the position of being teacher leader you know and kind of aspire to be a someone who has that integrity in the fabric of their being and, and kind of in recognition that we're always all just trying to do the best we can and uh you know so and neither's anyone else we're all just trying to find that connection somehow with each other. You know, you mentioned earlier on about, like, say, in the horse circles where you, even though you're leading the thing, you're not coming from a perspective of, I, I, I know everything. And I, I kind of, you know, I try to, Try to get that across to people when I'm doing clinics and whatever. I'm like, these are some things that I've discovered, and these are the way I look at I look at things. And you know, it's not the only way to look at things, but this is how I kind of look at things. And hopefully, this can help you. But the other thing you mentioned was you're always learning stuff. You know, I learn stuff all the time, not just in the teaching, but from the people that. And, and a lot of times it has to do with, you know, they all, they all come because they want to learn whatever. But they all have amazing lives apart from, from that situation and learning more about their lives is always fascinating. Like going, going to dinner at um, a clinic, you know, you have someone sit across the table from you and you start asking them questions. And, and sometimes it really reveals things. You know, years ago in Australia I had a lady at a clinic and, uh, yeah, I didn't think she was kind of 
getting what I was on about. Anyway, that night we were sitting at dinner and she happened to be sitting across from me and I asked her what she did for a living and she is a, a I forget the term for it, but she's a nurse and works in the operating room when they do organ transplants. That's the only thing she does. Wow, okay. She's an organ transplant nurse, basically. Anyway, the next day... She's not there at the start of the clinic. And he rolls in about 10 o'clock, gets a horse out, comes over the arena, and I'm, and I'm thinking, yeah, you weren't picking up what I was putting down yesterday. and you, You're not that interested in what I've got to say. I don't even know why you're here. That's what I'm thinking. That's the story yeah. I'm telling myself. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. so lunchtime she comes up to me. She goes, she said, oh, sorry I was late. I had to go into work this morning at 4 o'clock. Mm. So... I went into work this morning at four o'clock. So I went into work this morning at four o'clock and I took an organ out of an ice chest and stuck it in a human body. Yeah, wow. And I'm like, Warwick, you're a dick. You know what? You just, you totally, re- you, you, you just projected all your bullshit onto that situation. So like, I didn't say anything yeah. to her, like, what are you doing here? No. But that's what I was thinking, you know? And it's like, it's situations like that that always tell me, don't jump to conclusions, you know? Yeah, 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 absolutely. I learned that sentence. I love that sentence when you're in that position of teaching and leadership from Brene Brown. The story I'm telling myself is, and yes. I've done that with people. I've said, the story I'm telling myself is, da, 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 you know, because I feel like that's the, part of having the integrity and the kindness with the other person. Not yeah, that's the, it's a great communication tool that instead of mm. saying, you are doing this, yeah, it's like, the story I'm telling myself about what you're doing is, and so you're putting the onus on you, like you were doing something and this is my interpretation of it. This is not what you were doing. Yeah. This is what I am interpreting yeah. you were doing. Yeah, it's, it's a lot less accusor, uh, uh, yeah. you know, it's lot, a lot less of an accusation or, or whatever. It's, it's more of a self-reflection sure. way of communicating. Sure. Yeah. Yes, it's wonderful. Well, our time is about up here. Um, Amazing. Thank you so much. It's been a great, it's been so much fun talking to you. I was so looking forward to this based on what Kathy had told me about you. Oh, cool. I just have had such a good time. Thank you. It's really great being able to connect with you. How, uh, how can people find out uh, more about you? Well, they can go you have to... website? I do. I have a website that is called imaginalhorse.co.uk and I don't advertise the healing work that I do. I kind of let people find me by word of mouth, which is kind of an intriguing pathway quite often when people tell me the journey. Um, Yeah. But I imagine you have the right people show up. I have the right people show up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and yeah, it's always beautiful timing and just amazing connections. I'm, you know, so humbled by it. I'm very clear that I am not running the show. Something much, much more intelligent and connected to goodness than me is running the show, which I'm very relieved about. So, yeah, so um, on the website, you can email me from the website. And, uh, yeah, if you've got an inquiry about the healing work, something I've said calls to you or something about the horse circles calls to you, then 
yeah, get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. Um, do you uh, do you do social media at all? Like you? On yeah, I have Instagram got. Or? I I do, but I'm just about to change that. So the best thing to do would be to email me from the website, okay, or subscribe, okay. and then you'll get the heads up when that changes. Okay. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining me. It's been such it's such a fun conversation. I just yeah. love the stuff that you're into. It's it's thank you. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for sharing and, uh, your audience. It's great. Oh, you're welcome. I'm sure they are all as excited to hear what you had to say as I was. So uh for you guys at home, thanks so much for joining us and we'll catch you on the next episode of the Journey on Podcast. Okay, thank you. Thanks for being a part of the Journey On podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick has over 850 full-length training videos on his online video library at videos.warwickschiller.com. Be sure to follow Warwick on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram to see his latest training advice and insights.